Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I am here with Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who's going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Nate. It's always a pleasure to join you. Um, Our guest today is Rick Kahn. He is the Vice President Solutions at Verve Industrial Protection. Um, He's going to be talking about asset inventory as the foundation of industrial security and ITOT convergence. Let's get on over to your conversation with Rick. Today's topic is how asset inventory contributes to industrial security. Uh, you know, contributes in a world where where IT and where control system OT networks are increasingly interconnected. You know, where IT teams are increasingly responsible for at least some of how OT systems work. You know, that that some of how OT systems work, the responsibility often includes security. Very broadly, we're talking about ITOT convergence. Everyone's heard of the term. You know, Gartner coined the term in the, the mid-1990s, at least in my recollection. Back then, it was very controversial. Today, it's less so. Why are we still talking about this? It's funny that, that we, we say it was controversial. I think it's somewhat else still is. A, the discussion we had prior to, to recording here, you and I were going over some common players in the space. And well-intentioned, but the, the, the language, it's, it, uh, it draws a, a great deal. I was at a, a conference in Sacramento last year, um, Nesbitt's Cyber Senate series, um, and uh, Zach Tudor from uh, INL said, there shouldn't be convergence. There should be a shadow IT. Everybody do their own thing um, because there's a real passion that, that OT has. Like we talked, it's about safety systems and what you can or can't do. Um, but the reality is that IT has been injected into the OT space, right? We, we've introduced all these plug and play IP addresses. We've got this explosion of technology with IAOT, wireless sensors, uh, you know, skate a long haul. Some people wanting to move to the cloud. We don't have a choice. We can't just take the benefit. We have to do the, the heavy lifting and work. So to me, ITOT convergence is from an OT perspective, which is what I do. Um, how do I manage? And we talked about it earlier, Andrew. We need to get to where the corporate, you know, appetite is for risk and what the best practice delineates. But we on the OT side may need to challenge a little bit different path or a different time frame to get there. We all need to drive in the same direction, but we need to be OT specific in our application. So, Nate, it sounds still controversial, uh, you know. The trend in communications for the last 40 years has been greater connectivity. We all want greater connectivity for pretty much everything because we want the benefits. The trend for the last 20 years has been applying greater connectivity to ITOT integration. Uh, you know, it sounds like the problem's not solved. Right. And of course, greater connectivity comes with all these great things, but it also comes with all kinds of new attack vectors. And so you really got to put in a little bit more elbow grease when all of your systems are connected like this um, to properly handle the new security threats that you're going to face. That's right. And, you know, this was my, my next question to, uh, to Rick. How do we make this work? You know, in, in the world of ITOT convergence, um, you know, you've, you've talked about some of the, the, the differences, the challenges. You know, my own guess is that the trend has been going for 20 years. It's not going to back off. 
How do we make it work? How does this succeed? I think we need to, and, and the majority of what I want to go through today are some case studies of how you would actually do it, right? And the, the how you would actually do it is you need to be having discussions from a point of empirical knowledge. You have to have uh, content. Too much of the discussion, to your point, for 20 years has been conjecture or opinion. Um, I had a discussion just the other day with with a, a fairly senior person at a large organization, and and his job is to make sure that the pipeline is running the way it's supposed to run. And so he has pipeline integrity and he has leak detection and he has operations, but there's a big push in that organization to take networking away because it looks too much like what IT does. But the reality is he can't go without communications for more than, well, a few seconds. So if I'm supposed to run the operating spinning equipment and I want to make sure that I do my job and my boss wants to make sure I do my job, I can't just write an SLA for one of those three main components that I absolutely have to have to safely operate. If I can't control all three of those, then I'm not truly in charge of making sure they stay up. So the challenge, though, is he gets into these discussions as to the other side and they say, well, you know, we're doing it for this business unit or how bad can it be? Is it 300 systems? Is it 3000 systems? The reality is that once you actually have the discussion, it has to come down to, well, how many of these are we talking about? If I need to apply a new group policy and I've got 10,000 assets that are potentially in scope, but it's going to break something on five of those 10,000, I shouldn't be as upset as if it's going to break 9,500 of those 10,000. And so the context is a huge deal and too many people are speaking from conjecture. So to me, what I would recommend is that we borrow a page from what is called ITSM, very well-defined term, uh, IT systems management, and we're pushing it as OTSM or OT systems management. Um, you need a programmatic approach. You absolutely have to have uh, an eye towards what the program looks like. You cannot just buy technology. You cannot just buy a tool, cross it off the list. In OT, it won't scale. We talked at the beginning. Uh, you know, IT can standardize. Everything's going to be Windows 10. Everything's going to be using SCCM and everything can be centrally managed from a single domain controller. We know that there's no way that's going to happen in an OT space. So for the convergence to work, the OT and the IT have to come together and start first from what is our objective? What does the end state look like? What does, what we like to say, what does done look like? If that's CSC 20 with a specific maturity on inventory for automation and quality of content, so be it. But that whole context has to be understood before we run out and buy a tool. One of the most important things though, that I think needs to be considered and what empowers that is that inventory. Too many people don't know what they have or don't have. Um, too many people have great protections um, that then potentially curtail their ability to see the big picture. What I mean by that is, is uh, we go to a large organization um, and they've got multiple departments with multiple tools, each doing their own thing, and they often don't necessarily even talk amongst themselves. So having that comprehensive detailed inventory to start from, what do we have, how many of them do we have, how are we protecting them, how well are we doing, is an absolute foundational requirement to be able to build that plan or build that program going forward. And to your point and the point about this whole topic, if we don't have that empirical level set to start from, we can't make intelligent decisions as a team. Andrew, Rick talked about a lot of different stuff there, and I'm trying to connect it in my head. It seems to me like if there's one theme to, to the last three minutes of what he was saying, it's that effective communication between people, between teams, is integral to good security. It is. I mean, his, his, he made two examples. He had an example early on about 
about machine communications, but yeah, then he then he moved on to to people communications. Let me give you the machine communication example first, just in terms of context. He was saying that um, you know when people talk to each other, they they're trying to figure out responsibilities, and uh, he gave the example of a a person in a a pipeline organization, you know, responsible for the operation of the pipeline. And communications is essential to that operation and arguing with the IT teams because the IT team said, we manage all communications contracts for the whole company. How does that work? Well, just to give you a concrete example, you know, he said SLA, service level agreements, might not be the answer. You might need something deeper. Um, I've done a fair bit of work with pipeline companies over the years. I remember one company um, talked to me about, about their communications. I remember five levels of backups in their communication system. It was just crazy. And the reason for all this is that if you're dealing with a, a, an oil pipeline or a gas pipeline, you've got flammable explosive contents in the pipeline. And so there's a lot of regulations, there's laws about how you got to manage the, the, the contents of the pipeline. Um, as I recall, in some jurisdictions, uh, if you lose visibility into the operation of the pipeline, you know, let's say you lose communications, you can't see what a section of your pipeline is doing anymore. Well, now you're doing what's called flying blind. You cannot see what's happening. In a lot of jurisdictions, by law, you're, you're able to fly the pipeline blind for exactly 30 seconds. And then by law, you're required to shut it down. Within those 30 seconds, you madly try all of your communications backups to try and restore communication so you can see the pipeline again and keep it running. And if you can't, by law, you've got to lift the cage on the big red mushroom button, whack it and shut everything down. And so communications was important. So they had, and I don't remember the details, but it was something like, uh, you know, a fiber running along the pipeline. That was their primary communications. If you know some backhoe somewhere cut the fiber, well, they had, I don't know, nowadays it's probably something like, you know, cell phone internet as a backup. And, uh, you know, as a backup for that, um, they had plain old telephone lines with, you know, 5,600 baud modems as a backup. And a backup to that was like satellite communications, and I missed one. But, you know, as the backups got, uh, as you as you got deeper and deeper into your backups, your connectivity got slower and slower, but you could still operate the pipeline. You might not be able to operate it as efficiently as you did before because you don't have as much data in your hands. You can't profit from that data, but you could operate the pipeline. And so, you know, his point about pipeline communications dovetails into people communications, talking about responsibility, who's responsible for what, how do you specify a service level agreement with eight layers, not eight, five layers of, of redundant pipeline communications, each layer more costly than the other, each layer slower than the other. How do you do that? You got you to gotta talk to each other. And you know, his point on the end, we're, we're going to come back to asset inventory very quickly here. Um, you know, I would paraphrase his point as basically we're talking about industrial security here. You can only secure what you know you have. How can you secure an asset that you don't know exists? And so an inventory of the assets that you're securing and their status is is vital. This is talking about empirical data versus, you know, talking about people people in a in a, in a room with blank pieces of paper in front of them arguing over over, you know, theory. I'm not sure if this is an, an obvious question, but we're, we're talking about asset inventory here. Um, what 
what inventory? Are we talking about pumping stations? Are we talking about computers, software switches? What's what are we talking about? Uh, that's a very good question. And you know, later, most of the of the, uh, the the podcast here is going to be spent answering it. But I asked something like that question to to uh, to Rick next. So let's let's back, go back to him and, and see what he has to say. You gave an example of uh, you know ten thousand systems. If five of them go down, it's not a big deal. If ninety five hundred go down, it's a very big deal. If five pumping stations go down, your pipeline stops, doesn't it? What you know? Can can you clarify here? When I'm saying five, I mean five particular maybe IP address, this particular engineering station, or that particular file server or domain controller. Not five full pumping stations, um, which is a great clarification to make. But it does underscore the fact that not all assets are created equal. I could go out and find ten thousand IP addresses. Not every single one of them I need to give full level protection. Others I'll probably give passing protection. Or as we discussed earlier, we have a client that's considering taking all network-based attack vectors for specific risks on systems. And if those systems sit in a, a lower level of the Purdue model, like level, level two, they want to arbitrarily cut that risk score in half and make it that company's own perspective of the risk. Because yes, it's network-based attack. It's not necessarily considered a critical asset as far as operations concerned. It is redundant. It's multiple layers away. Perhaps it's behind a data diode, right? Network-based attack vectors suddenly, while important, aren't my biggest concern. And that's what I meant by understanding. Is it five of 10,000 that I need to work around? Is it most of my systems that I'm wide open, like the RDP risk that came out recently? That whole context, not only within specific risk, but that, that asset within the system of operations is where we then start to make informed decisions. Rick mentioned the Purdue model. Uh, what is the Purdue model? The Purdue model is, uh, you know, you can look it up. It's a, it's a way to organize industrial control systems to group assets so that they make sense. And, you know, it was initially invented as a way to group assets so you can talk intelligently about networks of things. Uh, you know, the, the device network, the HMI network, instead of just computers all over the place. Um, but nowadays, people think of it as uh, a model for security as well, because you drop a firewall or a unidirectional gateway or other kind of protection between each of these sub-networks. Often they'll arrange the, the model in layers of networks. You know, now you've got many layers of networks you've got to get through to your target. Um, I think this is this is what he talking he's talking about the the layers concept. Uh, you know the stuff deeper down is is better protected. And layered security sounds very satisfying to me. But on the other hand, isn't it isn't it possible that if you layer security measure upon security measure, you might just be creating for yourself a false sense of security that maybe there's there's working hard versus working smart. Um, you could just throw a lot of defense systems on top of each other, and it might actually be better to be more efficient, think specifically about what you need and what you don't need, and then implement your your defenses that way? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I remember an example. I, I had a, a new guy start with me in, you know, one of my roles over the years, and uh, we sent him to, to, to CISSP training. That's the uh, CISSP, I'll see if I can remember it. Um, Certified, oh, something security professional shows you what I know. Um, but it's a it it's the the acronym is still the most widely recognized uh, security credential. We sent him to training for this, and he came back having learned about 
you know, everything. And I basically said, so I've got an industrial network here. Uh, given what you just learned, apply the knowledge. How would you protect this? You know, what would you deploy? He says, well, I would take my list of defenses and deploy one of each. And then I showed him using, you know, the standard uh, attack patterns, the standard attack tree, um, how you would breach his one of each architecture. And he looks at it and goes, oh, there's more to it than that. Yes, there is. You can't just throw one of each. Um, you need to evaluate the, uh, you know, the the resulting security architecture against, you know, well understood attack patterns, and make sure that that you're covered. You can't just, you know, throw six layers of antivirus in there and 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 say you're done. So, on the one hand, you're right. On the other hand, um, it is possible to arrange layers of of security so that each layer really is robust and the next layer of network down is that much harder to get into um, you know to the point where the deepest networks uh, are supposed to be practically impossible to reach without insider assistance you know deliberate insider assistance at your 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 target and now we're not talking a cyber assault anymore we're talking a physical assault so this is sort of the ideal that a lot of people hold up but you know, back to the point here, back to Rick's point. Um, yes, if you have a robust posture, layers of security like the Purdue model, and you've done it right, you can legitimately discount certain kinds of vulnerabilities, the, you know, the severity of certain kinds of vulnerabilities uh, deep in the architecture because those vulnerabilities are so very difficult. Those, that, that, that equipment is so very difficult to get to and exploit those vulnerabilities. So, you know, his point is that all of that's relevant to uh, the the risk equation. And again, he's he's going to come back very quickly to um, we need the data in order to carry out those calculations. And you know that that data is is basically different kinds of inventory data. Okay, so if I can just summarize, um, layered security in and of itself is not sufficient, but layered security done thoughtfully is. So Verve has a suite of technology that helps with asset inventory. Can we talk about what you have for a minute, please? We found that the number one thing that you can do in this space is to actually connect to the endpoints and properly profile them. Everybody, even all the passive tools are getting lots of opportunities because of the inventory claims, when in reality they were built for something completely different. Um, and so we have no problem with a passive anomaly detection tool, but we'd rather it was used as a detection, right? As opposed to, you know, inventorying and profiling. Um, and so we think of it as an and, not an or. So to be clear, yes, we have a technology that we think is superior in the inventorying capability. But remember, part of this discussion is also about systems management. The agent, as opposed to a passive listening tool, the agent allows you to take change on the endpoint as well. It's not enough to just say, hey, like like the plant manager at an air separation unit once said to me, oh, you're going to do an assessment on my OT space. You're going to tell me that I don't patch and I don't change passwords. What good is that? <laughs> and the reality is he's got a point. Unless we can actually do something about it, right? We're not making much of an improvement. I just wanted to interject briefly here. Um, Rick talked about anomaly detection tools. Um, 
I just wanted to point out to anyone not familiar with the technology, what he's what he's saying there is that if you've got technology, an anomaly-based intrusion detection tool that is listening to the network and inventorying all of the communications, all of the active connections, um, you can produce a list of IP addresses. You can gain some information about what kind of machines they are. This one seems to be communicating the way a Windows machine would. That one's communicating the way a switch would. Um, but it's much harder to deduce things like, yes, and you know, six of 23 recommended patches have been installed on this Windows machine, and you know, the firmware on that switch is uh, two years out of date. It's very hard to draw those much more detailed conclusions. So you know, his point here is um, people sometimes are tempted to use detection tools because they will produce a list of IP addresses, but the depth of information that you have there is is very limited. And, and uh, you know, he's he's been talking at a, at a very high level here. Um, I asked him to go deeper and really talk about uh, what his stuff does in, in more detail. Can we dig a little deeper, please? I mean, I just heard you talk about what your technology does. Dig a little deeper for me. What is the technology? How does it work? The technology itself, we talked about the biggest challenge was having an inventory or an empirical start point. Uh, that's just the first step. Once you understand what you need, the biggest challenge in OT is is maintenance and management, right? So that whole, we talked ITSM or systems management, the emphasis on management. Uh, it's fine to have intel. You have to be able to act upon it. So that's why we built what we did. We built um, what we call an OT systems management uh, technology. Now, there's a basic setup component, um, and the case studies will walk through different ad adaptations and uses of the, of the technology. But the setup component is a comprehensive, real-time, automated inventory. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about the coverage, but in essence, anything with an IP address in the space needs to be connected to either with, if it's an OS-based device, we put an agent on it. We make no apologies for it. Uh, the, the main main OEM vendors put all sorts of agents on their systems to do, whether it's antivirus or backup tools or what have you. Um, and so these are safe and supported and it is embracing IT in the OT space. So we put agents on anything running an operating system. Uh, we use a number of uh, connection methods to get to networking and switch gear, uh, as well as embedded stuff. We talk to controllers. We can talk to the Rockwell Asset Center, but we'd rather talk to the PLCs because it's the source of authority. So we build this automated real-time inventory into a centralized database and we normalize all the data and we make everything in that database around the asset. We then allow uh, for tribal knowledge or metadata to come in so that the operators can say these are critical or these are redundant or these are, we could live for three days without them, we don't care. Um, we also allow them to put in where the system is located so that if they need to troubleshoot or send somebody, they know where it is. We then, um, once we have that asset record with, you know, empirical or tribal knowledge or uh, metadata, we then add third-party data. What's the antivirus status? What's the backup status? What's the whitelisting status? This helps to build what we call a 360-degree view or... Um, um, I call it the hockey card. I'm working for a U.S. company. I need to say baseball cards so they understand what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, it, it's a, a profile of that asset. And then that view you can then take things like the National Vulnerability Database and layer over top. And now we've gone from something we didn't even know we had very well in terms of an inventory and start to apply practical context to it. Now, the very next step that the platform and, and our technology and even our services both before and after help with is we can now take action 
and it's measured and it's directed and it's prioritized because I can take, for example, a national vulnerability database on an asset list of thousands of assets and come up with 10,000 risks. But if I can boil it down to those that are considered critical assets with critical risks that don't have a recent backup and whitelisting isn't locked down, I know where I need to start, right? Now, the last loop though, when asking, you know, who consumes this data, well, the reporting stuff can go to compliance, you can go to regulatory, you can go to CISO, CIO, which gives them huge insight that they don't necessarily have today. But you can also, within the technology, use the agents to make change. We can actually push a patch. We can tune an endpoint. We can turn on or off a port or a service. And so the systems management, the management part, is what really comes together in this multidiscipline platform that we built. Okay, Andrew, this is starting to get a little bit dense. Let me summarize. I mean, in the in the terminology of the industry, uh, the the agents are software, software that's installed on machines that will tolerate software being installed on them. He also talked about uh, connecting to and, and querying devices like PLCs or network switches, where it's not possible to uh, install the software directly. Um, in the, in the parlance of the industry, this is called an active solution. There's stuff in there in the, in the control network actively doing things. Um, and he also mentioned CVE, which is the National uh, uh, Vulnerability Database. Um, the point there is if we have software on a machine, uh, let's say a Windows box, it can report, look, here's the, the version of Windows, here's all of the software updates that are installed. Um, you can do the same thing for, you know, if we connect to a PLC, we can ask it for its, its version of firmware. We can do the same thing to a switch. We can, now he said, layer the CVE on top of that. If we've got the vulnerability information in hand as well, what we can do is uh, compare one to the other and say, this switch here is running firmware that's two years old and the CVE database has identified three vulnerabilities in that version of firmware. You know, that version of Linux over there, same thing. You know, it's a year and a half old, we're missing uh, eight vulnerabilities. So the 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 agents are gathering a, a much deeper uh, knowledge of the assets that, that are being inventoried than you would get by, you know, just looking at network traffic. This was back to the his original comment on, on you know, intrusion detection tools. Um, and we can couple that with, uh, with the vulnerability information. Another thing Rick mentioned was tribal knowledge. Can you talk about why that's important? Yeah, so you know, that's not a technical thing. That's sort of what's walking around inside people's heads. Um, you know, tribal knowledge is knowledge that's, that's not been written down. It's great as long as people are around. But if people retire, if people are promoted into other divisions, if they leave because they you know, join another company, you lose the knowledge in their heads. And the knowledge can be very important to troubleshooting and, and even planning security. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, tribal knowledge might be this particular machine, this IP address, where is it? It's in that room over there. It's in the third cabinet. It's the eighth machine up in the, in the rack. That machine, that IP address over there, that's in a substation. The other one's in a pumping station, you know, in, you know, 300 miles away. No, you know, knowing things like where they are, knowing things like why they exist. It's one thing to say, I got a Windows box with, you know, seven kinds of software on it with these versions. It's another thing to say, and we put it there to do this. 
So that kind of knowledge that's in people's heads, he called it metadata, is important to capture into the database as well and makes the, the, the information in the database about software and versions much more valuable. Right. And before we move on, uh, Rick talked about agents actually changing stuff, tuning things, changing settings. Uh, is that a, a good idea? Yeah, I mean, all change has its risks. Um, and that's a topic that Rick came back to much later in the podcast. So, uh, you know, let's go back to Rick and, and we'll catch up with that topic a little bit later. Can you give us some examples, some guidance? How do how do we put this into practice? I said inventory is important. I said negotiation is important in dealing from an empirical stun starting point and that you want to look at the overall program as an end goal. So for that, I, I, I want to share three different case studies and we can break them up and go into them as we go here. I'm not going to you know hammer through all of them without a, a pause here, but um, three that I think are different applications of how you would take you know an IT mindset or a systems management perspective and a programmatic approach and use technology in an OT space to drive significant change or significant benefit and value. Now, all three case studies are predicated on the use of an agent-based approach, um, a comprehensive asset inventory that covers what we call north-south and east-west coverage. North-south means I'm not just going to look at networking gear. I'm not just going to passively listen and hope to pick up some IP addresses. I'm actually going to go all networking communications gear, all endpoints that run OS with an agent, all embedded stuff, relays, PLCs, controllers. I'm going to go all the way down as far as I can go, anything that has an IP address. And in many cases, also uh, types of technology that have, say, a gateway, like a Schweitzer gateway with serial connected stuff in behind as well, because those are equally important to the safe operation. So north-south coverage, and then east-west. So I like to joke that we uh, we equally piss off all OEM vendors. <laughs> so um, a lot of them don't like other people coming in on their system. A lot of people don't like potentially taking away business. But we have found more and more that uh, many of the OEM vendors are just not able to keep up with the speed and development of security tools. Uh, we joke that, you know, well, not even joke, it's reality. Honeywell doesn't want to certify our stuff because it would cost us both a million dollars worth of testing. And every time either one of us made a change, we need to do it again. So what we are, we are advocating, though, is we've been doing this for 10 years. We've done it safely. We've never tripped a plant. We've never voided a warranty. And when you look at what the vendors are putting on their devices, there's lots of agents. There's lots of more and more tools coming. It is the future. We've seen ABB say, you know what? We can't stop it. Let's work together. So the thing that struck me about Rick's answer there is the, the value of automation. I mean, it's possible to do this kind of, of inventory manually. Um, you know, go and look at the machines, figure out their IP addresses, log into them, figure out what software is installed and so on. And some people do the inventory manually. It takes some time, it takes some people, you produce a report. You know, the thing that struck me was a day later, the report's out of date because things change constantly. Now, they don't change dramatically constantly. They change slowly, but more or less constantly. Odds are a day later, a week later, the report's inaccurate. With the uh, the automated system, one of the benefits of any automated inventory system is you press a button and you get a new report and you can see what's happening day by day. It, it doesn't go obsolete uh, immediately. So that that struck me as, uh, you know, in, in his answer. And he had also talked about uh, $1 million in testing. What was that about? Well, this is a tricky bit. Um, basically, the the vendors 
um, have a lot of say as to what software runs on their equipment. So, you know, for example, um, if we're talking a power plant, if we're talking refinery, often uh, the vendors of the PLCs, the vendors of the uh, the control system software, um, they will often have a person on site or even two people on site at a big site. And it's those one or two people's job to keep the vendor's stuff running correctly because they are the experts. They are the vendor. Um, what they, you know, what, what those people don't like is when somebody else, the site, the owner and the operator comes by and says, I'm dropping some third-party software on your machines. They say, no, 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 that's not our stuff anymore. We can't manage, you know, we manage our stuff. We don't manage other people's stuff. And they push back. And if the vendor wanted to certify somebody else's stuff, if you wanted to take, you know, all of the 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 Verve agents, you know, the 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 example he gave, all the Verve agents, and certify that they run correctly on all of Honeywell's equipment, well, Honeywell has a lot of kinds of equipment. They would have to run a full regression test for all of their product on every one of their products with the Verve stuff installed. This is the million dollars. It costs a lot of money to do this certification. So that was actually, you know, that, that's that's why he's getting pushback from some of the vendors, from some of the owners and operators saying, I don't know about this agent stuff. So I asked him next about the agents. What's going on with these agents? Does it, you know, does it really work? Do people actually let you install this stuff? So you've talked a lot about agents and, and you know, I know from personal experience years ago, I was working for an organization that was trying to install third-party agents on a lot of OT equipment. There was such pushback. Is that still the case? What, you know, what do you get in terms of pushback on, on agents on OT equipment? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually my favorite discussion. Um, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. I recall the conversation actually with a, a superintendent of a very large power company once. And uh, she was asking me questions about what do you do and how do you do it? And we said, well, you know, we put the agent out and, um, you know, it allows for an automated inventory. It allows for that insight. You know, it allows for a lot of flexibility. Um, and she said, well, but we don't, we don't allow agents on our devices. And I said, okay, well, what are you using today? And, well, they're an Emerson shop. And so they had the Emerson Innovation Security Center at that point in time, which used Lumension, uh, which is an agent. And it had a Cronus, which had an agent, and it had an Antivirus, which had an agent. I said, well, those are three agents you have in your systems. Oh, yes, well, we don't allow additional agents. Okay. We continued to talk, and then they said that they were experimenting with putting a whitelisting tool like Carbon Blackout. And I said, but that includes an agent. And again, she's like, well, you know, yes, it's an agent, but we don't want to put any more agents out there. And so it was this really weird sort of catch-22 that no matter how hard I pointed out that for 10 years, we've been putting agents. In fact, our systems integration, half of our company was putting a Cronus on Ovation before Ovation did. Um, it's a matter of understanding the safe environment and what you can or can't get away with and how to treat those systems with respect, more so than a hard and fast rule of just an agent. In fact, we had one organization say, well, the fact that you're going to talk to my endpoints, even if it's in their own SNMP language or with their own credentials or even with the third-party vendor software, you're not doing it in a normal operation. That's considered invasive and it's not allowed. So there is still, to your point, a lot of pushback on embracing technology, which is kind of the frame and the, the concept of the whole discussion we've had is that don't fear the tech. 
IT and OT can and have to work together. Um, and if we can find a way to build, you know, empirical data that we can together look at and make informed decisions, but even better than that, actually take effect. Uh, one of the things we talked about uh, prior to this conversation, you and I, Andrew, was um, other industry verticals and things that are happening or not. And a lot of people kicking tires, but nobody jumping in. Um, and I, I fear that it takes a lot more convincing and educating than, than it maybe needs to. Um, but I guess it means I'll still have a job for a long period of time. Being somebody myself who's afraid of change, I can empathize with the people that Rick's annoyed with. Absolutely. And, you know, people are afraid of change for many reasons. In the industrial world, it's not so much fear as risk. Um, every change is a threat. Every change, there's a chance that you fumble finger something and you've got a safety incident. People get hurt or you have a reliability incident part of the plant trips and shuts off. Um, and so, you know, change is risk. This is why we have the, the engineering change control discipline. This is the engineering discipline of managing the risks associated with change. You do your analysis up front, you uh, plan for the change, you execute the change, you evaluate, did that work? Uh, you learn from your mistakes and repeat. Um, but, you know, engineering change control uh, is not the same as no change. I mean, what what I see happening here is, um, you know, he he Rick talked about the cost of certification, and and back when I was doing this, you know, a lot of people were talking about certification, and it it was a very uh, potentially expensive process. Um, what people seem to be moving toward now, you know, he didn't use the word, but I heard him talking about a reputational. Uh, component to engineering change control. Instead of saying you must be certified everywhere in spite of how ridiculously costly that is for everyone involved, um, people are starting to use uh, the reputations of vendors, the reputations of pieces of software, not just verbs agents, but other agents that are being installed on industrial systems because those agents have value. They're, that's why they're being installed. And you know the experience of other sites with those agents is being taken into account uh, in the process of the uh, the change control calculation. So, you know, the, the bottom line is that change is happening. There's too much good stuff out there. You know, what I heard from Rick is that the, the you know, engineering change control is, is helping to manage the risk. It's not forbidding change and it's not, increasingly, it's not forbidding new agents. So that was, you know, that's an interesting development in the, in the decade since I was dealing with agents myself. You said you had another example. A detailed asset inventory and the empirical data I'm talking about for a large uh, FDA-regulated manufacturing company recently took uh, the agent-based approach with uh, agent list profiling of switches and network gear and embedded stuff. There's you know, multiple technologies to connect. And Monday morning, they installed uh, the technology. They discovered what assets were on the subnet. They uh, deployed the agents and the agentless components, and they tied it all back to its uh, central reporting component. And the detailed analysis that they took from the, that asset list, they then put in front of the operators. So if you recall the moment ago, we talked about um, putting context, what I call metadata or tribal, tribal knowledge. Once I have an asset list, I put it in front of an operator and tell him, you list for me which is critical, which is redundant. From a, from a physical or a maintenance perspective, let's put which room it's in, which rack it's in, which unit it's on, which floor it is, um, and really sort of start to build that. We then take in the third-party data. 
antivirus data, backup, whitelisting. And in many cases, in immature organizations, a lot of that doesn't even exist. But the idea was that we built a record all around the asset and everything the asset had or did. Now, in this first case, the client deployed this technology. By noon on Monday, they had all the IP addresses figured out. Uh, by the end of day Monday, they deployed the agents to all the endpoints. They tuned all this data. And they spent Tuesday and Wednesday going through the data that they were able to uncover. And Thursday at noon, they presented to the board. What they had discovered in those 72 hours was that of the 485 IP addresses, seven machines were dual-homed. Five of those dual-home machines were running things like TeamViewer with admin rights. They found 179 instances of devices not patched for not patch in WannaCry. They found a half dozen PLCs that had known exploits from the National Vulnerability Database. Now, the benefit to this client, they embraced this, what many would consider an invasive or a more uh, heavier touch in the OT space, to pull all this data back. And now they had empirical evidence for budget justification, for order of priority, for order of magnitude, right? And by seeing in the software list, for example, how many had antivirus and of what version and what, uh, what age, you instantly are able to plan your mitigation and your remediation. So as they go through this process, that same reporting is still available and they will see as they make changes, improvements to those scores and all those big red dials start to drop down. But it's all about empirical analysis of actual data from the endpoints to say, here's what we need to do in which order, and here's how mature we are, or rather, how far away we are from where we want to be. So Rick talked about a lot of, of sort of technical terminology when he talked about his inventory and how much bad stuff it discovered. Uh, let me define a few terms really quickly. Dual-homed hosts. This is a computer that's connected to two networks. I mean, a firewall is a dual-homed host. It's a, it's a computer, it's connected to, let's say, the IT network and the industrial network. And it's designed to be a security device. It's designed to be secure, to enforce security policies. If you've got another host beside the firewall that's also connected to the IT network on one side and connected to the control system network on the other side, that's a problem. That's called a dual-homed host. And the host generally is not designed as a security device and generally is less well protected than a firewall. And so having five of these, basically they're saying we have five connections between the IT world and the, the control system world, or you know between two, two pairs of networks um, that are not firewalled, that are not managed as security connections. He also mentioned TeamViewer. TeamViewer is a, a way to do remote access. It's like remote desktop. If TeamViewer is running as the administrator, anyone who guesses the password and logs in is running as the administrator and can do anything they want to your machine. So that's that's a bit of badness. And the the NotPetya and WannaCry. I mean, WannaCry was was ransomware. You want the security updates in place so WannaCry can't hit you. NotPetya was worse than ransomware. It erased your machines. You know, it, they, these are topics worthy of a a, a podcast all on their own. Um, uh, but yeah, you the, the the vulnerabilities that that those nasties exploited are vulnerabilities that most control systems would put a high priority on fixing. So this is sort of the badness that that was discovered. And also of note was how Rick mentioned uh, budget. You know, budget's something that we talked about a few times with other guests on the show. You know, how do you translate um, the priorities of ITOT teams? into the, the with the executives who have to actually make these decisions i found rick's perspective uh you know 
straightforward. Everybody wants to know how to spring spring up, you know, open up budget for for security. Um, you know, I caught the same thing when I was interviewing Rick. That was my next question to him. A lot of people want to know how do I spring free some budget for the OT end of you know ITOT integration of ITOT security. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we often get lots of um, lots of questions around that, and sometimes the question is, um, how do I get the CISO to give me money in the first place? Um, and in in the case of the case study we just talked about, where I've got. Uh, a list of assets. And so if you recall, we get all the assets, we get all the risks, and then I've got the metadata to say, here's what the issue is. Once you see how many devices are dual homed or mistakenly homed, you and you know how many assets you have in general, you have a pretty good parameter to start to say, I'm pretty sure a network segmentation project would look like this. Um, we have many clients that use you know data diodes, understanding what their data flow for historians and how many they have and where they have. I can instantly enumerate with this data how many systems are running Pi or OSI, and therefore help to design a data diode upgrade or a network segmentation upgrade. So there's some real um, empirical evidence in there. But the the other part that many, many people forget about is um, I can take that data and I can show how many of my so-called critical assets at a, at a key component have thousands of risks and aren't properly segmented. That usually gets a CISO attention and usually justifies a budget. There's another part though. Once I put this stuff in and I've got it segmented and as new patches come up and as backups fail or as systems go from primary to backup, that's all shown in the database as well. So we can instantly see once we're looking at this reporting concept, see just how, how quickly we fall behind on patching, how many times we need to touch things for troubleshooting backups, uh, or if we see changes in configurations. Um, we're able to get all that data and from a managed services perspective, we can start to scale economies of skill sets from central locations, or we can tune our third-party managed services to come in at whatever intervals at, at appropriate levels, uh, and we can instantly drive into that sort of intelligence. So there's not only that upfront justification to go and do stuff because we're this misaligned, there's ongoing evidence of how well we're keeping up and how much more time or attention we may need to spend. So you talked about monitoring, you talked about uh, agents helping with discovery, um, but you mentioned management. Can you give us an example of, of how that would work, where it'd be useful? Let me walk you through a case study of an example. I'll give you two. One, one that just that happened a while ago and one that we just blogged about if anyone's interested to, to go check it out. Um, the first one was an organization that had our technology across six different generation facilities. And the reporting console came up into a single headquarters and an SOC team. And that single headquarters was able to view all six sites and all their current data. They got a call on a Saturday afternoon. True story. Uh, the CISO phoned and said, I asked you guys to remove all versions of Kaspersky antivirus. They didn't want, as a U.S. company, a Russian-based antivirus uh, technology in their operational, operational facilities. And so they said, yeah, well, we're working on it with unions and change management and blah, blah, blah. And it's working. And he says, well, it, it needs to be done. I need to report on Monday that it's going to be finished. So they said, okay, I guess we'll do this. So what they did was they went to the console and they identified at each of the six sites which systems were running Kaspersky because you can easily drill into the, the dashboard and see what software is enumerated on the endpoints. They identified 147 instances of Kaspersky at six different locations. They then used the agent, and this is where it really becomes cool on the management side, and we talked about budget a moment ago. This is where the ROI really comes out. Um, they then sent a command via the agent to all 147 instances to uninstall the Kaspersky program. 
but they set a flag that said, make this an offer. Now, what that meant was, once they were done sending the command, all the endpoints were ready to uninstall it. But we then took that same list per site, and we sent it to a local representative at each site. And that site had the list of assets. And if you remember, we allowed them to put which room and which unit and which rack. So they were able to walk directly to each of the assets. And because the assets had the command queued, but the flag said, make it an offer, the tech had to log into the system, accept the uninstall command, and oversee it being done. So you have that last mile OT oversight with IT technology. Now, in a typical organization that had six generation facilities dating back to the 70s and 80s for vintage and number of systems and complexity and what have you, to get a call on a Saturday afternoon and try to identify and uninstall 147 instances at six different locations, four different states, would take probably days, weeks, months. We did this start to finish and sent the report to the CISO in 90 minutes. What I took away from that was this make an offer feature. You know, I, I've never heard of that before, but it seems like such a good idea. You know, he, he didn't say I pressed a button and, you know, uninstalled uh, 147 copies of, of uh, Kaspersky and six of the machines blue screened. Oops. You know, that's, that's classic ITOT mistakes. Oh, you know, I scheduled a backup and it rebooted a hundred machines and six of my of my power plants dropped. That's classic mistakes on the part of, of you know IT people applying IT policies to OT equipment. What he said here was I've got this tricky thing I'm gonna do. Um, send a message to the machine and send a message to the people responsible for the machine. Now the people have to walk up to the machine, they log in and they see a screen and it says, Hey, um, I would like to uninstall Kaspersky for you. Click OK if, if I'm allowed to do this. Click you know Reject if you don't want this done. And now what the people can do, they've got a list of machines at their site they have to do this to. They go to their least important machines. The screen comes up and they say, yes, do it now. And they watch. And if the machine blue screens, well, you're not going to press OK on it, the other machines on your site, are you? But if it works, you're going to build up confidence with the procedure on a bunch of your machines. Now you're going to go to the critical machines. You're going to go first to the critical machines that have hot standbys. You're going to go to the standby machine, press the button. If it blue screens, the primary is still there. The power plant has not dropped. If it works, you can tell the primary, fail over to the secondary and run there for an hour. If it still works, you might come back to the primary and say, okay, do it here too. Now you go on to your next critical machine that has a redundant. And very last, you do the equipment that's critical and has no redundant. But now you've built up a lot of confidence on this procedure on you know, the equipment at your site that, that you as the technician are very familiar with. You know, this, this process of don't just do it, but uh, make the locals do it, but hold their hand through the process, that, that seemed to me brilliant. I've, I've never heard this before. I thought, you know, what a good fit. You know, I'm with you, Andrew. Um, it does sound like a good idea. But if I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second, um, you mentioned the, the problem with just clicking a button and, and whoosh 147 instances of the antivirus go away. It does sound efficient. I mean, if, you know, errors aside, being able to just click a button um, and get the job done as opposed to 
having boots on the ground and, you know, half a dozen different facilities, all the people, it seems to me that that would incur more costs, not just in dollars, but in time and energy. Absolutely. And and so, um, you know, this is an optional, is my understanding, it's an optional feature of, of uh, the Verve software. You don't have to use it for uh, changes that are safer than that. You can not press the button and, and make it take effect right away. But it's a it's a judgment call, which change you do one way and which change you do another way. Again, it's all part of the engineering change control procedure. And I believe Rick's uh, next, he had two examples. His next example is talking about one of those. So let's go back and listen in and, and see what he has to say. The second case study I was going to offer in the blog that we just wrote recently on our on our website under the resources tab was about how you would remove uh, or protect yourself from the remote desktop exploit that came out recently. You can conceivably, not everybody likes this from an operational perspective, but you can take the database, look at all your assets and enumerate every single one that's running remote desktop. You could send a command to disable that service on every single one of those devices in conjunction with sending an email to operations saying, Hey, everything's on site today. No remote access, whatever phone in. If you need help, we'll do, you know, um, instances to help if you need it. But in the meantime, you've now re removed that port or service and therefore the attack vector. You can then go back into the database and say, give me all my different types of systems by criticality, by OS, by location, by ownership, by function, right? And you can actually prioritize your testing and your deployment. And that same agent can also push those patches to those thousands of assets in the field. So that's an example of where it makes sense to press a button centrally and carry out a change on a lot of systems at once. Um, we, you know, the, the central site still needs to be a little bit careful. Remote desktop is generally safe to turn off. Who uses remote desktop? It's maintenance people when they're logging in remotely because they don't want to drive into the site. It's a convenience. It's not vital for second by second operation of the site. The one example, or sorry, the one, one exception to that rule is um, if let's say an operator at one site is using remote desktop because they are responsible for remotely operating another site, let's say off hours, because the, you know, the other site has an, a five by eight operator, but off hours, it, the responsibility devolves to another site. That's where it's important not to turn off that remote desktop, but that information will be in the metadata. And so it's something that the, the, uh, the central site can go through and scan. Are these systems safe to turn off remote desktop? Yes. Bang, turn it off. And the vulnerability is gone. It's not gone, but it's, it's inaccessible. So, um, you know, that, that's an example of sort of instant action. I went back to, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on the end here. I went back to Rick and started asking him about the big picture again. Let's listen in. I do remember a conversation with, uh, I had with Greg Hale and his opinion was that it, just as you said, that, um, you know, IT and OT are talking to each other at a much deeper level than they were 10 years ago. I mean, what was it 10 years ago? There was the first IEC standard out. There was a couple of documents from the DHS. There, there really wasn't much. Um, nowadays, there's countless standards, there's countless experience, but in his opinion, a lot of people were still out there the, kicking the ITOT tires and, you know, not doing OT security enough. Um, do you agree with that? You know, where, where is the state of the world? And, and, you know, if it's anything close to where, where Greg thinks it is, how do we fix that? What, 
what needs to change going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's interesting because we go into an environment on one of two ways, always. It's either brought in by IT and we need to show them we understand OT and can work with OT and get OT to trust us. Or OT has us come in and we have to prove to IT that their systems and methods won't necessarily work. Like we talked about, you can't standardize and automate necessarily just on IT standard systems. And so, yes, much more does need to happen. Now, to Greg's point, there is much more discussion. There are a lot more IT people coming to OT conferences and vice versa. I see more and more organizations that are tying those two groups together, whether it's formally in a, in a racy chart or a governance discussion, or whether it's informally in terms of reporting structure within the organization. Um, but a lot more does have to happen. There is still a huge distrust between the IT and the OT side of the house. Um, and, and we still are brought in often, many, many times, as a so-called expert to help debunk whichever other side we're arguing against. And it's it's unfortunate, but it's true. And a lot of those perspectives are very, very well entrenched. Um, I always exhort when I'm talking to an OT guy to trust the IT guys, and when I'm talking to an IT guy to give the OT guys a little more slack. Um, but there's built up experiences of IT automating something that breaks an OT something, and therefore we're all up in arms because we're all on call on the weekend for some reason. So we're getting there, but... Um, that's why I like the method of having empirical data that we can sit down and have an actual discussion about as opposed to conjecture or opinion like we talked about a bit earlier. It sounds from what Rick is saying like both IT and OT people tend to bring in Verve to get the, the facts. That's right. I mean, in my experience, it's always more fun to argue when there's facts in front of you and instead of an empty piece of paper. You know, Andrew, I have to disagree with you. Most of my most fun arguments have to do with people who have no sense of the real facts. Ah, uh, yes. Well, maybe I should have used the word productive. It's more productive to argue. Um, we're, we're coming up on the end here. I, uh, I wanted to leave uh, Rick with the last word. So this has been great, Rick. Um, we like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a, a parting thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yes, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate this. Um, this is a topic that's got lots of moving parts. And as we have alluded to, there's many people with different opinions. And so I'm a firm believer that the more we communicate, the better the better off we'll be. Um, and so the only thing I'd want to push to people is, you know, we regularly put up these things we find in the field, lessons learned, five steps to a faster deployment or tuning or information or insight. Uh, we often post, you know, uh, threat updates too, once in a while if need be. So really what I'd love for the community to do is to reach out, uh, go to our, our blog page, uh, find a topic you like, um, make some comments, uh, use the contact us to suggest other topics you might want to see. Um, but let's just keep the dialogue going. And so the more we can share from what we've seen multiple times in the field, if I can help you, the end user, avoid uh, making the same mistake, because I've seen it 20 times and we're sharing how not to do it, um, then I've done my job. But uh, yeah, please come see us. And thank you, Andrew and Waterfall for giving us the opportunity to do this. I had a look at the Verve blog and it's actually, it can be difficult to find. Um, in some browsers, uh, you go to the, web, the, the, the verveindustrial.com website, you look under the resources tab, you click on blog, and it's all good. In other browsers, for some reason, that tab does not render. So if you're looking for the blog in a browser that you're, you're struggling to say, where is this blog on the verveindustrial.com site, not verve.com, verveindustrial.com, go to info.com verveindustrial.com and you'll find the blog.
Okay, then with that, I think we're all finished up here. Thanks to Rick Kahn for sitting down with you, and thanks to you, Andrew, for sitting down with me. Thank you, Nate. We'll catch you next time. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.